All right. Welcome, everybody, to Theology Thursday. I am here, as always, with Isaac, and uh, we are excited to talk about the rapture with all you guys. Now, we have to start by, um, whoop, I did it again, left the audio on on my computer. We made a mistake. We did. We have to own it. It's a big one, a disgruntled she's, viewer. She's pretty gruntled still. She was, she was really upset. <laughs> she was really upset. She's a missions-minded uh, woman who's a faithful member of the church, and she pointed out that Isaac, when he was talking about the most unevangelized part of the world, should have said the 1040 window, which describes the latitudinal lines between 10 and 40, where all of the majority of unreached people groups are clustered. But instead, what did you say? I said the 80-20 window. Now, why? And, and there's an important... You know what's so funny is that when the person pointed it out, they actually knew why I said 80-20, which, which is, shows you what's on my mind. Yeah. And so there's also something called the 80-20 principle. And the 80-20 principle is this idea that in churches, 80% of the work is usually done by 20% of the people. That's right. So even though I was talking about missions, what's on my mind, is she here too? Is she? She's here. Let us know if you're here. She wasn't disgruntled. No, she was. She's. She's awesome. She gives great feedback. Um, and it was funny because she knew what some, we meant. In the midst of COVID, especially, the 80 20 principle is so on our minds that even when we mean the 1040 window, yeah. we say that. But what I'd like window. to point out, though, is I'm not the missions pastor of this church. That's fair. This is all fair. Uh, <laughs> and there should have been someone on staff to correct me. That's true. And you also got the lat- latitudinal. I said longitudinal when I meant latitudinal. Mm. Um, mm. Although to be fair, the Bible does talk about correcting a fool according to his folly, and That's I didn't. True. I didn't know which one I was supposed to it's apply. True. It also moment. says, <laughs> oh, no. "Don't answer a fool according to his folly." That's true. Hey, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Michelle Serrano says on Anaya's behalf, "Hi, Dad. Hi, Isaac. Same person. Pretty adorable." Hello, hey, Anaya. How's it going? You got a bunch she, of you guys She corrects here. us too. She does, usually with really good theological corrections. Yeah. Suzanne Lopez says 80-20, which I can only imagine is her just emphasizing the fact that she is part of the 20%. We actually, 80%. I'll say this, we are so blessed uh, yeah. at this church that um, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for the church and their faithfulness with on so many levels, especially during this, this time. So. Yeah. All joking aside about the 80-20 principle, like when we did our first outdoor service last week, there was zero question that we would have enough volunteers to do every, I mean, we probably mm-hmm. were telling people that we didn't need, you know, as many, as much help as we could have used or as, mm-hmm. as people would have volunteered. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm blown away. Uh, both uh, Gilroy Hollister, what, what they do continually. I, we're, we have a good church. We, we do. Yeah. Church. Thank you to all of you who are contributing to that. Michael Perez says, can you make the joke about locusts and helicopters again? I just read Matthew. Ha ha ha. Yeah. We had a meme. Um, I don't think, I don't know if Kevin can pull it up anymore, um, but he got rid of it already, but we had a meme that showed um, an Apache helicopter and a honeycomb and it called it the diet of John, the dispensationalist. And that's a, that's a complex joke because John the Baptist ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. That, that actually, that meme alone should be what, like if you go to seminary, you go into Bible school, 
I should give someone a meme and say, write a two page mm. response paper on what this means. That's a good and idea. And if you could decipher the levels of, of theology in that, you pass. That's true. That's, that's a great idea. And you don't have to go to the rest of your eschatology class if you get the That's true. If on the you get that, you don't have to take the final. And so the joke is there's, there was a view, a particular view of the book of Revelation where um, these giant locusts were interpreted to be helicopters. So they combined those two things together um, to make that awesome meme. We got a post-millennialist in the oh, house? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw. He left a comment last week, the obsessive gardener, post-millennialist. I would ask you how things are going, but I'm sure they're going great. <laughs> That's a good post-millennialism joke. Um, Welcome, Obsessive Gardener. Great to have you here. Post-millennialists are for sure welcome. If you watched uh, the first episode of this eschatology series, we talked about the fact that um, this is not something to divide over. In fact, we never revealed our cards as far as our own millennial views. So who knows? And people guessed wrong a lot, which yeah. was the, the point. So in all of these, and tonight too, we're, we're trying to present views and show you the strengths and the weaknesses of the views and, and have you dig deeper into the scriptures and the text to see what you think um, is, is, is right and God honoring. But with that said, um, we asked a few friends who watched and they tried to guess, well, okay, what do you think we are? And most people said that you didn't know, they did a good job at not revealing your cards, but the people who were like super, oh, I could totally tell you were this. Yes, they were wrong. Nope. The only people who got it right were people who already knew my view before that. Um, and so, yeah. Welcome, Obsessive Gardener. And, and again, you know, we're going to try to do the same thing tonight where we're, we want to talk about this stuff as objectively as possible because part of it is when to avoid the kind of effect of, you know, well, this is what my pastor thinks, so this is what I think. Um, Obsessive Gardener just says, blanket, we're on mill. Look at my face, not revealing anything about whether there's a yes or a no to that. Um, are you an actual gardener, Obsessive Gardener? I, I should check out your channel because... This isn't, you know, this is not a well-known fact. This is a fun fact about Pastor Isaac Serrano. He's yeah. a he's an obsessive gardener too. I'm all about that gardening life. If I wasn't a pastor, I just want to garden and go fishing every day of my life. Dang, you were born in the wrong millennium. I was. <laughs> I was. <laughs> all right. So tonight we're going to talk about the rapture. Um, and the rapture is, unfortunately, a, kind of a hot button thing. You know, it's kind of a spicy, spicy. thing to talk about. And uh, we don't want it to be, but we just we think it's important because like everything else in 2020, the rapture content on the Internet is on the rise, both from people making fun of it, as we'll see in a second, and from Christians who are kind of like, um, you know, more worried than ever about mm -hmm. the imminence of the rapture. And so we can say up front, chances are, Kevin, I feel like I'm cutting in and out. Are you guys hearing that too? Or is that my head? If it's my headphones, it's fine. Could, could be your headphones. Seems fine. To seems me. fine to you. All right. As long as it's on, as long as it sounds okay to you guys, let me know in the comments if you can hear that. Um, oh, Michael Perez, a gardener too. All right. We got to do like a, a side podcast that's just all about gardening. I won't be allowed to be a part of it though. Um, chances are, as I was saying, if you grew up evangelical, um, if you grew up in the church in the United States, yeah. anytime in the last 30 years, chances are you default to what we call a pre-trib rapture view. Yeah, um, it's it's not a common view internationally or historically, but in the United States in the last couple hundred years, huge, the most prominent view probably in our at least in our tradition. Now, um, let's look w the kind of I wouldn't say the biggest influence. One of the biggest influences pop culture wise towards a pre-trib rapture view came in the mm -hmm. form of an incredibly popular series of books called The Left Behind 
series. Now, you guys in the comments, if you read them, go ahead and, th and say it. Um, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. I want to see how many of you. And how many of you like went, oh, Matt Kirkland wants in on the gardening podcast. He's, I don't know, you're, like, you're about that garden life too? People are surprising me left and right. <laughs> I always tell people my pastor name is Pastor Serrano and always brings the heat. That's, That's true. Although I want to get, I don't want to get off on another, you know, controversial subject, but Serrano peppers. Can we say they're overrated? They're a little overrated. They, they, they don't have the same flavor. No, of a they're jalapeno. hot. Yeah. They got a little bit more kick than a jalapeno, but the, the flavor is missing. Let's, uh, let's go to Kevin because Kevin uh, spent a lot of time in the Caribbean when he was young. And I know he has a strong opinion about peppers. Kevin, we got Kevin a new mic. Test that new mic yeah, out, Kevin. Check it out. Yeah, Serrano peppers are way down the list. What's the top of the list for you, Caribbean boy? Don't try yeah. to be all tough and be like, you know, uh, ghost peppers are a little mild for me, but I like I the grew up on the uh, Caribbean Scotch bonnet, yeah, which is the best one. pepper. It's delicious. But there are a lot of varieties. There's Cleo's Dragon, Trinidad Scorpion. You're making stuff up now. No. The Sub Scotch Zero. The Scotch Bonnet. <laughs> He's just saying Mortal Kombat Mr. characters Mr. Freeze. <laughs> the, uh, the Scotch Bonnet is habanero-like. That's yeah. the closest kind of like mainstream analogy. Yeah. Um, now, Dow wants to know who is overrating peppers, meaning who's out there saying the Serrano. We, gotta, we have got to stop talking about peppers yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, this save it for the new gardening podcast that Michael, the obsessive gardener is starting with and Isaac are starting. Okay. Maybe we'll eat some okay, of those. So peppers. we had a decent amount of people read these books. Yeah. Many of them for sure. I saw a lot of people just read the first one. They right. didn't keep going. There was but, a lot. There was like seven or eight. Yeah. And they sold millions. They broke into the, it wasn't just like in Christian circles. It right. was just huge. Did you read them? No. I was a little bit too young. My older siblings read them. Um, but I like, they kind of missed me. I did watch the movie, which Kevin, you can actually, if you missed the book, you had two different options. Um, oh, Dina bless. Thank you. She said she didn't read the books, but she saw the thief in the night movie. See thief in the night is the OG left yeah. behind. That's pr that's pre left behind books. Even yes, that goes, that goes back it's to like, where, what you would do is, and you can say it in the chat if this is, was your experience with those movies, but it was like, you're going to have like a youth night and you realize, man, half these Christian youth aren't saved, man. We need to, we need to have them be Christian. So we're going to show them this movie. And by the end of it, they're just terrified. Will I believe just don't make me go to the guillotine. Yeah, whatever can keep me from getting my head chopped off. That's like a straight up horror movie about the end times. It's like a premillennial horror movie. Now left it's behind, scary. scary, left behind the books came out first. We're big. And then the first of, two different iterations of movie versions came out. This is uh, the cover of the first one left behind the movie starring Mike Seaver. That's Mike Seaver <laughs> from whatever that show was called. <laughs> Kevin, what was that show called? Growing Pains. That's Growing Mike Pains. Seaver from Growing Pains. That is man. correct. That's how'd right. he get, how'd he get left behind, man? He was a good kid. It turns out okay for him. What's his character's name in left behind? His, his, the real actor is Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. I'm trying to remember the character's name, but I can't. Um, somebody in the in the chat, if you remember the name of his character, and then if you missed the Kirk Cameron version of the movie, which is the one I saw, Nicolas Cage did a Left Behind movie not that long ago. I should have looked up the year, but the Nicolas Cage one is like 
Yeah. And like in the last 10 what's years. What's interesting is that the Nicolas Cage one on Rotten Tomatoes actually has worse ratings than the Kirk Cameron one. Rightfully so, from what I've heard, although I haven't seen it myself. But so the point is, th these were hugely influential. Like, it's hard to overstate how much these informed the kind of street-level yeah. Christian's eschatology. I don't have a hard number, but my suspicion is that in kind of evangelical Christian culture in America, 90% of people hold to a view that corresponds to, yeah. to this. And, and the kind of, we'll get more into the details of what that view is, but the simple version is that it's, it's premillennial. So you'll remember that from a few years yep. ago. It takes a very- A few weeks ago. Did I say a few weeks? said a few years ago. Few, oof, that's I don't want to get corrected again. That's, <laughs> that's how 2020 feels. Um, <laughs> and it takes a, like a very literal chronological ordered reading of the book of Revelation and says all of this stuff is going to happen in this way, mm -hmm. um, including uh, a rapture before a discrete seven-year tribulation period. Now, um, again, movies like this, books like this, just helped to reinforce what was already a prevailing view in the United States. Now, as always, there are caricatures all over the place, um, you know, kind of misrepresentations, oversimplifications of all the different views, and memes are the best place to turn to for that. So Kevin, if you could throw up our first meme, this one just kind of cracked me up. It says, I feel like 2020 might finally be the year to pull this prank successfully on someone. It's just leaving an empty set of clothes in the seat of a car. If you've seen the Left Behind movies, you'll get that one. Now, the next set of memes, um, one of them's pretty mean. So go to the first one. This one says, there won't be time to get ready. You have to be ready. And this is a, a Christian meme kind of meant to warn people that the rapture's coming. So pay attention. And you can see the image is of all of these people flying up from the earth toward heaven. Suzanne Lopez, Buck Williams is the name of Kirk Cameron's character. Thank you, Suzanne. I was never going to remember that. So did you know that, Suzanne? Or did you it Google it? Did you Google it? You tell the truth in the chat right now. Suzanne, if you Don't remember lie. that, I'm super, super impressed. I'm impressed. So see that image, right, of people, these are Christians lovingly saying, hey, this is coming, so be ready. Now jump to the next one. Opponents of Christianity say, if you're ever feeling really stupid, just remember some people are waiting for this to happen. And then a picture of basically the exact same thing as the last yeah. one. So this is obviously an insult, but it's the reason I wanted to show it is because it shows how two different people can look at the same exact event and one set can say, this is coming in the future, prepare for it. And the other can just point to it and say, look at how ridiculous mm -hmm. Christians are. All right, one, a couple more. She Googled it. She Googled it. Well, thank you for looking it up thank for us. Thank you for telling the truth. All right, next one here. This is just a straightforward assertion of the fact that there will be a rapture before the tribulation. So it just says the church will be raptured before the great tribulation begins. And if you jump to the next one, we get... Mari saying, you said the rapture is close. Scriptures have determined that is a lie. There's no such thing as a rapture. And the reason I put those two in is because basically they're, each one is just a straightforward assertion of a view without an argument. And that's kind of how memes work. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not really meant to like make a detailed argument. But on Theology Thursday, we can do better than that. And what we want to do is as much as we can in the time we have, do a, a deeper dive into what are the arguments for the pre-trib rapture position biblically, and then what are the arguments against it? Um, but first, got to define what we're talking about. Um, because like we've said this over and over, but when it comes to most theological categories, especially eschatology, mm -hmm. Christians don't necessarily always have like a clear idea in their own minds of what they believe about something. 
Um, so rapture um, is a result of transliteration and translation of a cup of one word in Greek. And if you will, maybe should we just go and read First yeah. Thessalonians four because this verse, this passage rather, is going to come up a lot. So let's jump over to First Thessalonians four, start at thirteen. Um, this is the section that a lot of the argumentation kind of revolves around. It says, this is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is where it gets really important for the rapture view. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So that is kind of the pre, there's a bunch of other things we're going to look at, but that's kind of the premier verse about the rapture. And the word rapture comes from that Greek phrase, um, in, it's rendered into English, caught up. It's one word in Greek, harpazo. And um, that word harpazo, it means exactly what it sounds like, caught up, snatched away. It often has the connotation of, some, of it happening kind of suddenly, that some, something is grabbed or stolen or taken. Um, but in the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, that was rendered the, the Latin word. I don't know how to pronounce Latin. Maybe Kevin could help us. Um, it's like rapimier or something. How would you say that, Kevin? Kevin did a bunch of Latin in college. I took a bunch of Latin, but I can't help you there. Oh, come on, man. She just faked it. Sound real confident. <laughs> I can't <laughs> fake Actually, it. it's Rapunzel. Rapunzel. Yeah, so that so basically it's, it's a Latin word that is close to rapture, and then that ends up transliterated into the English word rapture. So that's the only place in the Bible where the word rapture in that sense would occur yeah. is that. And so here's what I think is important for the rest of the discussion. If we define the word that way, meaning the rapture is whatever Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, whatever it means to be caught up and meet Jesus, um, then every Bible-believing Christian believes in the rapture. Do you think that's fair to say it that way? Yes. I mean, if if... All you mean is Christians being brought up to meet the Lord in some sense, then yeah. That at some point, Paul says, we are going to be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Yeah. Um, every Christian believes that, at least. The question and where all the debate is, is when does that happen? Mm -hmm. um, and, and for the kind of pre-tribulational view, um, it's all about how, you know, the seven-year tribulation period that's part of premillennial view. Um, when does the rapture happen? And where do we go when we're raptured? Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of the big questions that all of the argumentation circles around. And another kind of related question that I think is important is, are there one or two events in which Jesus comes? Because the pre-trib rapture position will say Jesus comes once to rapture the church. That's kind of the first second coming, yeah. if you will. And then he's going to come again in the kind of glory judgment and, and bring in the end of the ages. And so... So depending on what you mean by rapture, um, every Christian, and this is a helpful tip um, when you're talking about it, say, hey, if, if either way, we all, we all believe 1 Thessalonians 4 is the inspired word of God. So you're somebody's getting taken up somewhere to meet the Lord in the clouds. Yeah. And that, I think, helps find some common ground. 
So as far as the when question, it all has to do with that tribulation. And this can, we could really easily get in the weeds because depending on your view of the millennium and how to read Revelation in general, you may or may not believe that there is a discrete seven-year tribulation period. Mm -hmm. So basically anybody who is pre-trib rapture is also pre-millennial in their millennial view. I know that's getting kind of, if this is the first one of the series you've watched, that's kind of complicated. Yeah, yeah. Go, Go back, back a couple and, weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point is it presupposes that there will be a seven-year period of intense increased persecution, tribulation, and or not persecution, but tribulation and, and wrath on the earth. And so the pre-tribulation view is that the rapture happens prior to that, pre, and that Christians are brought up into heaven to be spared from that wrath. Um, in addition to that, there's less common views, mid-trib and post-trib, um, which agree that there's a seven-year period, but the mid-trib folks say that the rapture happens in the middle of that. Um, mm -hmm. And they do that because of that passage in Daniel that says, you know, times, time, and a half a time, which is yeah. three and a half, a way of saying three and a half. So it's the middle of the seven-year period. I've never actually met someone who's mid-trib. I don't know if, if that's still I, a view I, that's... I haven't. I mean, it's obviously p some people believe it, but I've never, never met somebody. If you have in the chat, let us know. Yeah, let us know. If you're mid-trib, let us know. And then post-trib, um, that's a broad category, but typically it means folks who believe that there will be a seven-year rapture, but the church, or a seven-year tribulation, but the church won't be raptured until after it's over. Right, before um, the, um, um, a literal millennial reign of Christ begins. Right. So, yeah, and, that, and you might have hinted at this already or said it, but just to be kind of crystal clear on this, we started off with three views of the millennium, post-millennialism, all-millennialism, pre-millennialism. What we're talking about today when we talk about a pre-tribulation rapture is a smaller segment of one-third of those views. It's right. pre-millennialism. Rapture talk really isn't an amillennialism or post-millennialism. Yeah. And if it is, it means something different totally. than what we're talking about today. Yeah, and that's sort of almost like the bucket that you could put the other entire category Oh, we in. got one. I am mid-trib. Mid-trib, Bible history science. Sweet. Mid-trib, welcome. Um, that's cool. So, and to answer your question, Obsessive Gardener, he says, is the seven years idea from the book of Daniel? Um, and that, and the short answer is yes. Predominant, yeah. The, but the, people who hold to it will find a bunch of stuff in Revelation as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the dominant text is that, yeah, if you, I am mid-trib, sweet. I'm so happy we had someone yeah. pop on that was that. And again, part of the reason why we're doing this is to show you where we started off the week one is, Culture often shapes our eschatology. Right. And so we want to do our best to ground ourselves in the scripture, knowing that culture is influencing us. And what we did was week one is show you how if you lived in this time period, in this culture, at this place, you were more likely to fall into this category. Right. And you are more likely to fall in this category if you're at this time and place. Just because, let's say, a mid-tribulation view of the rapture isn't the most popular view, doesn't mean it's not right. Just like post-millennialism was dominant in early American right. history. And then in the, the aftermath of World War I and II, premillennialism premillennialism became the dominant view. It doesn't mean it's right. It means you take what's in the scriptures and do your best to discern where yeah. you're at in culture. And the thing we say all the time is, if it's not clear, then charity. That's the C.S. Lewis thing, yeah. right? You, you have charity towards people with different views. Um, and so the kind of as you just said about the all-millennial and post-millennial view, um, the kind of other big bucket besides all of the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib view is 
people who believe that the rapture, that passage is not describing Christians going to heaven. Um, so you could, you know, you could broad brush it and say, these are people who it's, it's like an, a view against the rapture. But again, that depends on how you define yeah. rapture. But the, the bigger point is that they don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Most people who are post-millennial don't believe in a discrete seven year tribulation anyway. So the mm -hmm. kind of pre mid and post trib language doesn't really apply. Mm -hmm. But the point is, and we'll get into what they believe instead, but that when that event happens, it's not Christians going to heaven to avoid the wrath of God. Um, so let's start by kind of walking through the pre-trib view and some of the arguments for it. As we always say, we can't exhaustively describe all of this. There's a million little, you know, subcategories within each view, but here's kind of the broad view. And this, by the way, the pre-trib position is held to by many prominent and incredibly intelligent biblical scholars, people like John MacArthur, Charles Ryrie, David Jeremiah, J. Vernon McGee. Um, as far as traditions, a lot of non-denominational evangelicals, a lot of Baptists, a lot of Pentecostals, and the majority of dispensationalists, if not all dispensationalists, um, mm -hmm. believe in some version of pre-mid or post-trib. And so, as I said earlier, um, the pre-tribulation rapture distinguishes the rapture event from the second coming of Jesus. The rapture is a secret event that happens first, where it, prior to the seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes and rescues the church to heaven to avoid that. And then he will come again at the end of the tribulation with those Christians mm -hmm. to establish his earthly millennial reign. Um, and so again, that two, the key is there's two kind of separate returns of Jesus, a secret one um, to rapture the church and then the kind of big victorious second coming. This is a view that, that really got started 19th century mm -hmm. um, and, and primarily here in the States among the Puritans. Um, and the, I think it's important to say that like sort of like dispensationalism in general, it's associated with John Darby um, and the early 19th century Schofield reference Bible. But there were views about Christians being spared from the wrath of God way prior to that, all yeah. the way back to ancient church history. Um, it just wasn't necessarily associated with a rapture. Yeah. And someone pointed out in the comments too, which is helpful. And, and so... There's only, it's, as Sam said, there's only so much we could get into, but each one of these things has like variant views. And even in with what we're talking about, there's historic premillennialism right. um, versus a classical dispensationalist premillennialism. And there's variations on what that, that looks like. But with at least historic premillennialism, there's been a, you can trace that going all the way back pretty, pretty early. Yeah. And there was Christians who s said very early that the church, and we'll get into this in a bit, will suffer, but they won't suffer from the wrath of God because they've been saved from the wrath of God. And so right. there's a distinction that's made. So they could suffer from nature or from the wrath of sinful humans, but they won't suffer the wrath of God. That was originally called chill, chilliism. Yeah. Chili, killiism? It's kill. Yeah. Did yeah. I say, <laughs> look, yeah. I just want some, chili, we're know, trying to go back to the chili, chili peppers. Chiliism. You say hot peppers. You say killiism? Yeah. You know those words that you've only seen written down and never had to say out loud? That's yeah, one of well, them. actually, I might have not <laughs> ever heard anyone else. So I just, like I said, man, say it confident. Yeah, Killiism. Oh, you're talking about chicharrones? Chicharronism. Yeah. I'm an adherent of that. Um, Robert Bengel asks, if Catholic Christians have differing opinions on the millennium or on the tribulation, um, the one thing I do know for sure is that Roman Catholic official teaching is not dispensational, no. not premillennial. Amillennial. Yeah, it's amillennial. Amillennial, basically since Augustine. Yeah. Um, and so. even again, everything we say is generalities. 
I can guarantee you, you'll find people who are Catholics that have been so influenced by evangelical culture, they're, they believe Waiting in for a, a rapture. Yeah, right. exactly. So one of the biggest arguments for a pre-trib uh, rapture comes from the, uh, a, an interpretive grid for the whole book of Revelation. And it's an interpretive decision that lays out the sections of Revelation as different, having different chronological relevance. So it says that the first three chapters are the things that were, meaning this is about the church in the past. Mm-hmm. And then um, chapter four on until, is it? Chapter four, man, I should have, I should have double checked this, but the middle chunk is things yeah. that are describing like the church age. And then the end is the things that are yet to be. Mm-hmm. And again, this, this is a, a view held by people like John MacArthur. And the idea that they say is that the, the church is mentioned over and over again in those first three chapters. And then after that, when all the suffering and tribulation happens, you don't have the church mentioned ever again mm-hmm. that you don't see the word ecclesia that means church. And so the rest of what's happening on earth the argument goes, does not concern the church. And this is reinforced by something that God tells the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, if you want to bring that up, Kevin. Um, in the seven letters to the seven churches, when um, Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the argument goes, he tells the church broadly, they would, they would say this, this applies to the whole church, that because of their faithfulness, they're going to be kept from the hour mm-hmm. of trial. And so then as the kind of wrath language goes on and on beyond that, they say the church has already been spared from that because of what's said mm-hmm. in Revelation 3.10. And that in, in, includes the bowls of judgment and all the kind of things that start to unfold on yeah. the earth after that. So that's kind of the, the argument from Revelation drastically oversimplified anything else to add in there no and it's you know for people who typically don't hold that view the first thing they're they're going to say is hey the book of revelation isn't did you did you not know it's not written to to people in the future who's it written to it's it's this is the apocalypse of jesus written to the seven churches and then he lists seven locations where these seven churches are so the argument on their end is that this is written to first century churches under persecution and typically they'll either say under persecution from Nero or Domitian, depending upon when you think the book was written. Um, what the rapture folk will respond with is like, no, no, we know the first, yeah, clearly there's seven churches in the first century, but then after that, you, you didn't pick up on the massive literary difference. Uh, the language is different. The yeah. tone is different. Um, and so they, w- they will then argue that you have to use that grid of past, present and future to truly understand the book. Right. And so that's kind of the argument from Revelation. And then they look at that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we already looked at about the church being caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And they will say, that sounds like a very different event than is described in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, It's also known as the um, the Little Apocalypse. I don't know if you've heard it called mm-hmm. that before because it's the language is incredibly apocalyptic. But if you look at just one little chunk of that, Matthew 24, we'll just read starting in 29. Yeah, and as, as Sam reads this, listen to, to, to tonally and what e- emotions are invoked because the strength of this argument is going to be, can't you, t- these are, can't you tell the difference between these two things? They're not the same thing. Right. Yeah, so here's Matthew 24, 29, and keep First Thessalonians 4 in mind as we go. Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the argument goes, look, if you read First Thessalonians, they both talk about a gathering of the saints. But this one says it's after the tribulation, and it says all of this horrible, catastrophic, cosmic, negative stuff is going to happen. All of this judgment, all of this brutal stuff. And then you go to First Thessalonians, there's no judgment. There's no stars falling from heaven. It's just, hey, the, the Christians are being caught up to meet Jesus in the air. And so proponents of a preacher rapture view say these are describing two different events. The mm -hmm. first one is the secret rapture of the church. And then the one in Matthew 24 that Jesus is talking about is the final second coming of Jesus to get rid of death and suffering and punish the wicked and all of that stuff and kind of bring in the true end. Um, so that's, that's a fairly compelling argument that, hey, these don't sound like they're describing the same thing at all. Another one, um, we can be qu a little bit quicker here, is in John 14, 2. We can just read that verse. John 14, 2. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, famous verse, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So once again, what they would say then is, man, that sure sounds like Jesus is going to heaven. And then he's going to come and bring you to where he is. Bring the church, Christians. Yeah, Christians and it's broadly. not the doom and gloom destruction event quite yet. Right. So that's a that's kind of, there are, some, there are others. Um, there's 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll probably look at in a second. And there's other stuff. We're, we're going quick here just to make sure we get everything in. But that's broadly what the arguments for a pre-trib rapture are. You say, hey, 1 Thessalonians says explicitly, Jesus is going to come and we're going to meet him in the air. And that's a separate event from all of this other stuff. So again, chances are um, there's a really good, and the, uh, the obsessive gardener says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. That's something we may have to cover next week because um, there's a lot of non-rapture related arguments to be made there in the Olivet Discourse about... Yeah, there's, there's something called preterism and something called partial preterism. And we can maybe we get into that next week. Yeah, we're going su to. Suffice to say for now is that there are portions of scripture that people have their whole lives been just taught to assume it's about a future event. Right. And there's an argument to be made that actually Jesus was making a prophecy at a future event and it was fulfilled within the lifetime of the first right. followers of Jesus. Right. And so when Jesus says this generation shall not take, should not pass away until all these things take place, the, all of the debate is about what generation is he talking about and which of these things is he talking mm -hmm. about. Um, and so we'll, t we'll get into some of that next week. We, um, it's, very, it's super, super interesting, but uh, it will derail us too far to, to cover it now. Now, as far as a kind of view that the rapture is not a separate event, that it's all going to happen at the second coming of Jesus, um, this is a view we talked about before. It's held by basically anyone who's on-mill or post-mill. Um, some really prominent people, R.C. Sproul, Hank Hanegraaff, I'm including, and then some, also some kind of foundational characters, Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, um, the Roman Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So some of the, and, and most of the kind of mainline, you know, Lutherans and um, yeah. Anglicans and things like that. Um, oh, hold on. Here we go. Bible history science says in Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Jesus clearly taught an in gathering after the tribulation. 
But Paul said, the reveal, revealed the rapture mystery, so Jesus never clearly taught it. So Matthew 24, 29 through 31 cannot be the rapture. Um, this sounds like I'm having a hard time following all of what you're saying, but I get the main point you're saying is that the ingathering is, happens after the tribulation. And again, the counter argument to that would be, yes, but this is not the ingather. That's not the same ingathering that is described in 1 Thessalonians 4. These are two different. But That's the opposed, yeah. That's right. what they would say on the And so, so we have Bible history science and the obsessive gardener, which is interesting because they have different views than each other, but both of them would hold that at least some tribulation has to occur before a rapture event happens. Yeah, only on Theology Thursday do we unite the mid-tribulation rapture and post-mill in an all-out assault. It's on true. The pre-trib on the pre-trib mode. people who are quietly sitting there, staying out of the chat. Feel free to jump in, y'all. It's fine. The water's fine in here. Um, now, again, this the, the kind of other view, and this is what's being argued by, by these two, uh, I was going to say dudes, but I shouldn't assume that. I don't know. Neither of them have a name. No. Um, these two folks, um, is that there's only one second coming, not two. That's kind of the simplest way to do it. And any differences that you see in these passages, according to this view, um, are differences of emphasis, not differences yeah. of actual event. Because there's a, str- I mean, this isn't necessarily like a scriptural, I mean, in a sense, it's a scriptural argument. But it's more, I, I don't even know what to call it, but I mean, someone could say, wait, if there's a rapture that's seven years before the real final coming of Jesus. Don't we sort of know the day and the hour in which he's coming right. back? Because we know a seven year. A countdown count- starts at yeah. least, right? So you'd have, you, you have to deal with that. And there's ways, again, people that are, people are brilliant. They've, they have responses to all of this stuff. Right. What you have to do is do your research and say, what is, what is making the most sense? Um, but just a practical argument against it is, well, then there's a seven year countdown. Right. And everyone knows that. And don't you think everyone who, all the Christians who were crazy about a seven-year rap, uh, seven-year tribulation, don't they think they're, they'd go, oh, they were right. Look at all these people disappear. So there's like almost like a pragmatic argument that says it's something, something's got to be going on differently. Yeah, and they would say um, that look, there are lots of places in the Bible where the same event or the same theological category is discussed in very different terms because the audience is different, the context is different, and therefore the emphasis is different. So they would say Jesus in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse is talking to a different audience with a different intention when he talks about the second coming. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 is explicitly writing to comfort Christians who are worried about the fate of their loved ones who have already died. They're afraid they're going to miss the second coming of Jesus. And so he's writing to comfort them. So of course he doesn't talk about stars falling from heaven and all of that apocalyptic Mm -hmm. language. He's just saying the part that's relevant to the point he's trying to make. So they would argue these are describing the same things, but from different angles. Now, where it gets really interesting is um, the, the argument against the kind of pre-trib rapture position from First Thess- Thessalonians 4 is that that being caught up to meet Jesus in the air isn't us getting taken away to heaven, but us going out to meet the victorious king as he comes so that we can all then come back down to earth mm-hmm. together. That's sometimes referred to in a derogatory way as the U-turn yeah, the position. U-turn. But how would you kind of describe that from first century historical perspective? Yeah, uh, the, it's called the U-turn because it's based upon um, the idea that historically the readers of First Thessalonians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about in that when Caesar was victorious in battle or some great military general, 
was victorious in battle, what would happen was they would make their march back into a city and there was a formal, like technical procession. And, and there's some evidence to even call that a, a parousia, right. that there's a returning of a king to a city, to his people after he's been victorious. And what the people would do when the king's coming back is you don't sit back and say, oh, the, you know, the general, the king's going to be back in, in two days. What you would do is you'd prepare and you'd meet him outside of the city walls and usher him in as a victorious champion. Um, and that's and definitely something that happened. No question. That's, that I mean, for, for they sure would, the, the army would encamp outside the city so that preparations could be made for the, this meeting. Yeah. And it was a, you go outside the city, and meet and celebrate the victor, victorious king. And you come back. You all come back And that's back the, in. the U-turn. You go out and meet the king at his parousia, and then you come back into the city with the, the, the victor. And so the idea is, is what they would argue is that, well, the, the first followers of Jesus, they would know this, this term. It's technical terms. When Jesus comes back, we are going to go up and meet the new victor, and then we are going to come back down because the end goal of Christian eschatology is not to be taken away from earth and go to heaven. It's the, cre- it's the new creations and new earth. It's the coming yeah. together. Heaven, heaven comes down. Earth heaven, doesn't go up. We, the, in, the final picture in revelation is not us leaving behind earth, but the new heavens, new Jerusalem come down and earth is, is made new again. And there's this uniting a marriage, if you will. Yeah. And, and a really strong argument for that. Um, is that when Paul says the word meet, the caught up to meet in the air, that's the Greek word apentesis, that word is used two other times in the New Testament to explicitly describe people going out of a city to meet someone, and then they all go back in. Yes. And they're just, they're in regular narrative parts. They're in like Acts and Matthew, and it's like Paul and his homies show up, and everyone comes out to apentesis. And, br- yeah. and they all go back in. And so the, the argument is, hey, it's very clear in other examples. That's what this word meet means. It doesn't mean you meet and you all go away somewhere else. It means it's like a welcoming committee. You're going to go out and meet them and bring them back in. And again, this, is, this passage isn't the only one that people use to argue for the rapture, but there's a lot of really good textual and historical reason to believe that this is describing a meeting party for the victorious king, not a leaving and going away. And again, the other argument for that is that the intent of the passage, as I said a second ago, is to to comfort Christians who are afraid that their dead loved ones are going to miss out on the second coming. Yeah. Uh, Again, and that comes back to the authorial intent is what, what is the reason or what, why is Paul writing this? And he says it explicitly. I'm trying to give you hope about your dead loved ones. Yeah. Don't be afraid. They're going to rise and meet Jesus. And we're going to, we're all going to be together to meet Jesus when he comes. Um, is the argument. Um, yes, you're right. Bible history science says Jesus uses the same technical term in the parable of 10 virgins, but the virgins did not escort him back. They followed the bridegroom to where he came from. Let's check on that. I don't know if that's true. Um, that is where the same term is used. That's uh, It's in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. It's the parable of the 10 virgins. Um but at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet. There's Apontesis again, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. 
So I would argue, um, Isaac, we get your thoughts on that too. I would argue it's not at all clear that they're going to where the bridegroom came from to meet, yeah. to meet them. They're all going to a wedding feast together. The bridegroom comes to meet them and they go out to meet him as he arrives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even so, and it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to point out is you do the work and you say, okay, how is this, this word used in scriptures? And it's never going to be like, sometimes, well, sometimes in scripture it is like this, but most of the time when you get into what we call a word study, it'll be like 70% of the time this word is used, it means this. Right. 30% of the time it means this. So just because a word is used two times in, in the same manner, it doesn't prove your case. Not at all. It yeah. just says there's something similar going on in this passage with these two other ones. And then like this one, that's a little bit more blurry. It's a little you gotta, ambiguous. You got to dig in and say, okay, what do you, what do you think? But about the main it? point of that parable is that the, the, the bridesmaids, if you will, who were not ready were gone when he came. They weren't ready for him. They were off buying oil for their lamps. And so he comes and they're not there to meet him. Um, but yeah, in, in any case, that's the, ar- that's the argument with First Thessalonians 4. And they would say that the Olivet Discourse is describing the same thing, but from a different angle for a different purpose. Um, another argument they use is, f- and it's interesting because this passage gets used by both sides. First um, Corinthians 15, starting in verse 51. Scroll all the way down. 1 Corinthians 15 is a giant chapter. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and then he quotes from a couple of prophets, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so the argument here goes, Paul is describing the same situation, that there's a trumpet, the dead are raised, which he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, and at that time, the perishable body is put off and the imperishable body is put on. So it's not language of going up to heaven to be a disembodied spirit. Mm-hmm. It's the language of receiving your immortal resurrection body. And so again, it's just an argument to say basically, hey, this is about the defi- the final defeat of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Um, the resurrected believers get an imperishable new body. It's not going up to heaven. It's Jesus coming down to bring in new heavens mm-hmm. and new earth. Um, and that's basically, again, it's interesting because that passage gets used from both sides, but it's more, I would argue it's that particular passage is used more persuasively by people who are, um, who don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. Yeah. Most, uh, same, same Bible verses are used by multiple sides all, all the time. And that's, I mean, it's quite common. So don't be surprised when, if you're reading and studying this, that that's it, you'll see that because that's pretty, pretty common. Yeah, pretty common. And and again, it's sometimes it's a question of, well, is this specifically describing two different things or is it describing the same situation from two different angles? There's a there's a hermeneutics. And when we talk about hermeneutics or or, or biblical exegesis, um, we're talking about the study and interpretation of Scripture. Um, if your hermeneutics see two passages that appear to be describing the same event, but they talk about them differently. 
there's a type of hermeneutic that will try to harmonize those right. and figure out, okay, I think they're the same event. So, so I got to figure out how to remove the contradictions and merge it into the same event. Then there's also a hermeneutic that goes, ah, those are two different. I know it sounds like the same event, but they have to be different. Th that is what's under the hood. Like, right. And so a lot of your eschatology or any type of theology is going to be determined by that hermeneutic. I'll give you an example, super important one that m probably a lot of people didn't pick up on when they read the scriptures, but Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it. How many times? We all know Jesus went to the temple and cleansed it. Okay. Did it how many times? Or did well, it happen? Your answer is probably immediately one, and it's going to be when he makes his way to Jerusalem. Right. When Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, he goes in, my man, they've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, and he cleanses the temple. In the Gospel of John, the, the cleansing of the temple happens very, very early, at the beginning. Right. Chapter two. I think it's chapter two. So it's not right after the triumphal entry. It's, it's not. It's way up front. And so what some people will do is immediately their hermeneutic will say, oh, th those have to be two different events. So there's two cleansing of the temples. There's one that John talks about very early, and then he goes back and does it again, which is possible. Right. Jesus might have cleansed the temple twice. He might have cleansed it three times. Um, the, other, the other option is what people do. They go, oh, John sees the, the temple event as so important that he puts it at the front of his gospel because he's not concerned about chronology. And so there's not two events. It's just John taking something that happened later in Jesus' life and telling you in his introduction, this is what Jesus right. is all about. For theological reasons. For theological reasons. Now, those are, again, hermeneutical decisions. And I, the reason why I bring that all up is I, I want you guys to be aware that to, to be conscious Yes. Of what decisions you're making and why. Yeah. Because they, they will determine a trajectory. Yeah. And do you have a theological presupposition that causes you to force certain texts to mean something that's not a natural meaning or natural interpretation? Um, and that happens all the time. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, we'll just look at one more because we got to start wrapping up. And this is, um, can't talk about the view that's kind of opposed to pre-trib rapture without bringing these passages up. It's also interesting, um, it got put back kind of in the chat a little ways, but Jeff Wagner brought up um, something that Isaac mentioned earlier, which is that um, a mid or post-trib rapture would be predictable on the basis of the three and a half or seven year time frame once the rapture happens. So yeah, that's, that is an argument against it. And as you can see- There was a response. Let's read the, re the, the rebuttal response by Bible History Science at the very bottom. Kevin, scroll down, scroll down. Um, he responded to Jeff, it will not be predictable because Daniel 9.27 is not about the signing of a peace treaty, but the Mosaic covenant spreading. So when you see green figs, know that it's near. Yeah. Now, Bible history science here is invoking um, a lot of what I would call interpretive decisions in how he's describing that. Would you, would you say that's fair? So yeah. things like... Um, the signing of a peace treaty. These are all things from Daniel chapter nine. Um, and what the Mosaic covenant spreading represents is there's a million different interpretive yeah. decisions you can make about that. Um, yeah, no problem, Jeff. Jeff says he joined late. No worries. No worries. It's a great point to be made again. Um, 
And so, yeah, Bible. And it's good to point out that those, again, the, we all have to make those interpretive decisions. But if you make an interpretive decision that say, okay, this is dealing with the Mosaic covenant and it's not dealing with say this, then that affects the trajectory. Right. So you may not be seeing an argument. It's like making, this doesn't make any sense, but you got to follow the inner logic of someone who's, who's worked it out to truly assess it on their own terms. Yeah. Um, and the problem that people get into is like, for the sake of the conversation we're having tonight, you might start out your Bible reading with the strong assumption that the rapture is going to happen pre-tribulation. And you will, if you're not careful, then read everything through that lens. Or you might start with the assumption, well, the rapture is not happening. I'm not a Christian who believes in yeah. the rapture. And therefore, anything that sounds like it might be, you go, well, it can't be the rapture because I don't believe in that. Yeah. So, And the, the reason why we try to stay objective in all these conversations is we want to guide you through a thoughtful, intentional reading of these things so you can arrive at your own conclusion rather than be another voice saying, well, this is what to believe, so read the Bible accordingly. Um, oh, the obsessive gardener, man. Come on, man, making gardening Says, jokes. when I see green figs, I know summertime is coming. I love summer, especially gardening. You know, obsessive gardener, my fig tree, I just got my last black mission fig this week. It's done. And that means the summer's over. Not, and I don't mean this in any kind of eschatological sense. I mean, just literally. It could be. It's 2020. That's true. We could, I could get it. The one bright side will be a second round of figs. Isaac's got a, you got a tiger fig tree. Yeah, I wasn't going to say it. My, my <laughs> you were going to fig shame me? My, my figs are <laughs> superior. If you, I mean, I'm sure you know about this who are in the gardening game, but black mission fig is like on the, it's on the low end of the, of the fig Dang, game. Dang, it ain't, I mean, it's not a brown turkey fig. Give me some You're right, here. brown turkey fig, then the brown, but I got, I got some good stuff. He's got the tiger figs. He's fancy. So, okay, a couple more passages and then, we'll, and then we'll close up. Um, the w kind of the primary passage that people who don't believe in a pre-trib rapture use um, was actually a pair of passages from Second Thessalonians, um, particularly Second Thessalonians chapter two. And part of why this is so compelling is because this is Paul's second letter to the same church that the big rapture passage, First Thessalonians mm -hmm. four, happened in. So it's a subsequent letter, and he says this is this is probably the strongest passage here in chapter two. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, he, he talks a little bit more about that. And then at chapter 8, he says, or sorry, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, and here's the key, by the appearance of his coming. So Paul here, and there's other stuff in 2 Thessalonians 1 that you can look at, but for the sake of time, we'll stop there. But Paul says, again, to the same church, look, if someone tells you this happened in secret, don't believe them. Because the way you will know it happens is the rebellion has to happen first. The man of lawlessness has to happen first. And then when Jesus comes, at his coming, he will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. Mm -hmm. So the argument goes, look, there's... Paul explicitly says there's no secret first coming. When the coming happens, it'll be after all of this stuff. And when he comes, he'll defeat evil finally, all in one big event. And it's really interesting because, you know, most pre-trib rapture folks don't say the rapture has already happened, but there have been people who did. 
we talked about this last week, but that was one of the things Harold Camping said after his, after the rapture, his, his proposed date came and went, he said, mm-hmm. well, judgment day happened in secret. It was a secret coming of the Lord and judgment's mm-hmm. been passed. Paul says here, if anyone says that, don't believe them. Mm-hmm. You'll know when it happens. Um, and so again, the basic idea there is it's all going to be one event and it's all going to be after the tribulation. Yeah. And there's an argument to be made too, um, that a s- someone who's writing scripture could be looking at a big chunk of time and they talk about, I mean, scripture is concise. I mean, he's writing a letter on papyri. It's not like I'm going to map this out, that there's like a a telescoping, there's a bringing together of multiple things and just describing in a basic way. Because his point isn't at that point to map out precise dates and times. He's just wanting to give you, here's the summary. Look, man, when the... When the Duke, right. you'll know the due to law, lawlessness will come, then Christ's going to destroy him. And some would argue, and I, I think rightfully so, that more could be going on in this picture than just what's briefly stated. Right, absolutely. He's not exhaustive. Um, we've talked about this before, but these are occasional documents. They're written primarily to address specific situations. They're not yeah. exhaustive. Um, and so, yeah, and then uh, finally, you know, the other argument, that's made is that the general pattern of scripture, and these are kind of, we can talk about this as the last thing, because these are the two sides of the argument. The general pattern of scripture is not to, that God would remove his people from suffering, but that he will preserve them, preserve their faith in the midst of suffering. That's what people who don't believe a preacher of rapture say. Um, and then again, people who believe a preacher of rapture say, yes, Christians can suffer in the world, will have trouble, but when it comes to God pouring out his wrath, we've been saved from that, so we'll be removed from it. Mm-hmm. So those are, again, kind of the two sides of the coin. Any other thoughts on that before we start to bring this thing to a close? No, I, the, w- just the one thing that I would say is um, it's a helpful distinction to make to say Christians won't suffer from the wrath of God. If you hold to a, a, a premillennial, pre tribulation rapture it's a very good thing to make that distinction because there was a version of this um and it wasn't necessarily theologically thought out but christians would say it like well god wouldn't let his church suffer right god wouldn't let his church suffer and it it, you know you could believe that at a certain again culture and time shapes your theology you could believe that let's say if you're growing up in america uh, before technology explodes there's no internet you're not hearing major world news you don't know of Christians getting slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands. You just, you know, you're posting up in your village and everyone, you know, I'm growing up in 95% of people in my village are Christian and life is pretty good. Um, that argument is very powerful. Just Christ wouldn't let his church suffer. Right. Um, but we can't think that anymore because Christ's church is suffering and suffering immensely. And has without ceasing for 2000 years. For 2000 years. So you have to make that distinction between wrath and just suffering in general. So it's a helpful and important distinction because we can't raise Christians believing they won't suffer. Right. That when the Bible says he will keep you from this, that right. doesn't mean life is going to be all good because back to the original one of the passages where we started, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Right. Um, but take heart or take courage, depending upon the translation, for I have overcome the world. Right. His promise is that he's going to come get you and he's got a place for you. But he also promised that in this world, there will be trial and tribulation. So Yeah. And so you don't want, in eschatology, 
that is, because again, you could believe either one, but you don't want to come at it from a, a thoroughly unbiblical perspective like that, assuming that God would not allow any suffering to befall yeah. his church. Um, the church is built upon the suffering of Jesus and we seek to live out, you know, it's not like we seek out suffering, but Paul talks a lot about bearing in his body that yeah. same yeah. suffering. And so, um, you know, we don't seek it out. We don't wish for it, but the expectation is that in this world you will have trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think at the end of the day, by the way, just want to say, love the active chat today. Sorry that we didn't get to address everything. Everybody I just want to talk about figs, man. Yeah, we're going to have an after party. Um, we're going to stop this video and start another one that's going to be... Figs, Although the obsessive gardener guavas. said he's not up on his fig game. Um, and you know, if you were if you were pre-mill, you would have studied figs a little more. because they Pomegranates, figs. Dates. Dates. There's one other one that's the olive tree. The olive tree. So here's here's the main... That's a premillennial premillennial garden right that's there. The, oh, man. That's such a good idea. Premillennial power garden hour. Premillennial... <laughs> They're here to give you tips, man. Yeah, he might obsessive gardener might switch views to get on that show with you. Here, here's the here's the last thing that I would want um, to leave you guys with. Either way, and this is sort of a point that Matt Kirkland was making in the chat. Whichever view is true, um, when this many faithful Bible believing Christians disagree about something, the one thing we can know for sure is that it is not crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And anything that's not crystal clear, we hold with a loose hand. We hold with charity we have tolerance towards christians who we disagree with and we focus on the main things of our faith and when it comes to the end of time the main theme of the new testament is resurrection it's new heaven and new earth it's jesus giving you a new and imperishable body like his um, and that's the thing that all of us whether it, whether there is a rapture before a tribulation or not we all agree that our, our primary focus should be the primary focus of the new testament my primary focus is that I, 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 I want that rapture to happen very early on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we could, if we could, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm just going to tell, tell you what, what I, I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was another, that was another thing that was thrown um, into the, into the conversation was um, before 2020 is done, man. I'm ready. Yeah. Take me. Yeah. And so again, you guys, charity, in things that we disagree about and then and know that your hope is in the final defeat of death the wiping of every tear the resurrection and eternal life with jesus and we all agree on that either way right that's a yeah. little bit too cheery of and cheesy of a note to even end on but kevin what do you think got it you got any words of wisdom for us before we sign off here no i've been dealing with technical things kevin's been you guys can't see this but kevin's been running around back there earning his keep today so thank you, Kevin. We appreciate you. Hey, thanks everyone so much for being here. We got one more week in the series. We'll see you next Thursday. Good night. <laughs>